Amen. Lord, that's our desires, that our lives truly would be like a love song to your heart. Lord, we so love you, and we thank you because you first loved us. And Lord, I pray as we go to your word right now, that your Holy Spirit would minister to our hearts. Lord, it would not be the words of men, but Lord, that your Spirit would speak to us. Lord, may we be receptive to how you want to minister to each and every one of us. We thank you that we're all here by divine appointment. Nobody's here by chance, but Lord, you brought us here and you desire to speak to us. So, Father, we love you and we praise you. We're desperate for you. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Welcome again to Calvary Santa Cruz. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're starting a new book this morning. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We'll be happy to loan you one. And if you like that one better or don't have one at home, you can absolutely take that home as our gift to you. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by Word of God. So read the book. Don't wait for the movie. It's time to open up your Bible. Amen. And hopefully it's not just on Sunday and Wednesday, but that we'd be spending time in His Word every single day. Well, 1 Corinthians. I'm going to take a few moments and give, I'll give you an overview on, on just the book itself, and then we'll dig into chapter 1. And I came to the realization in the middle of the night last night when I was studying that there's no way I'm getting through chapter 1 this morning. So if you start panicking because Pastor Day's at verse 12 and it's been a long time, don't worry. It's okay. God's in control. We're going to finish the chapter next week. But I want to say this about Corinthians... This is one of the most important letters for Christians living in the world that we live in today. 1 Corinthians by some has even been referred to as 1 Californians. Because it is so much, Corinth is so much like the place where we live right now. And even though it was written a couple thousand years ago, it's such a practical book in exhorting us to live holy lives in the midst of a godless and a perverse generation. We see that in Corinth, it was a a city that was one of the most important in in that day in all of Greece. It was a city of great wealth. It was a city of commerce. It was strategically located right on the Aegean and Adriatic Sea. So it was a place that was right by the water, much like the place we live in today. And because of its two seaports, it was a place where people were, that was very strategic and where people came to vacation. Again, very much like the city that we live in. There was an isthmus that was four miles long on ground, and because it was so close between the Adriatic and the Aegean Sea, what would happen is a lot of the ships would dock, and literally they'd put them up on rollers and roll it four miles across to the other sea instead of going the 200-plus mile trip around the south of Greece because it was so dangerous. So with that being said, it also became a place where there were a lot of you know, travelers and sailors, and, and it was a place, again, that had a lot of people coming in and out of it. And we're going to see the impact that it had on that place. It was a place that was destroyed by the Romans and then rebuilt by Julius Caesar as a Roman colony. It was a prosperous city, again, a port city filled with many who loved to pursue both uh, philosophical knowledge and pleasure. Again, very much like the state or the country we live in today, very much into philosophy and the pursuit of pleasure. The city was infamous for its immorality and pagan idol worship. It was filled with shrines and temples. The most uh, prominent was a temple to a a goddess by the name of Aphrodite. On top of an 1,800-foot-high I don't know, precipice or hill, whatever you want to call it. On top of that, they had this huge temple to Aphrodite so that anybody that came into Corinth, the most prominent thing that you saw was this big temple for idol worship. And out of that temple came a thousand prostitutes every night to sleep with those who were in the city as a form of worship. 
Again, not unlike the world we live in today where sexual immorality is running rampant, Corinth was a place that was very godless. The pleasure seekers came to spend their money and to get a holiday from morality. It's interesting, if you've seen those commercials lately for Vegas, you know what their line is now? What happens here stays here. So come on a vacation and sin your brains out and don't worry about it. You're not taking it home with you anyway, right? Good reason it's called Sin City. Well, again, Corinth was much like that. It was a place where people took a vacation for morality. It was a place where people went away to be involved in temple and idol worship and prostitution and drunkenness. It was just out of control. And that was Corinth. The city of 700,000 people was as morally bankrupt as any city on the planet. It was so wicked that there was a term to Corinthizomai, was it Corinth? Zomai, which means to act like a Corinthian, meant to be debauched, to be drunk. If somebody was laying in the street, they'd call him, oh, look at that guy, he's a Corinthian. I mean, drunkenness, immorality was, was something that was linked closely to Corinth. So this godless city, and what's amazing about it, in the midst of all of that, Paul on his second missionary journey, some five years before he wrote this book, had stopped in Corinth and had planted a Christian church. And so in the midst of all this godlessness was this church that was there. Now again, those of you who've, who live here in Santa Cruz and know about this place, it's pretty godless, amen? And praise the Lord, though, that we're here. You know, Santa Cruz means Holy Cross, and my prayer is that God would turn this place right side up, but it's got to start in our hearts first, amen? And the reality is that what's the be what better place to take a halogen light than the darkest place around? And Corinth was very godless. Corinth was a place where people, again, vacation for morality. It was caught up in idol worship. Sexual immorality was running rampant. Paul had gone there and planted a church. And while he was there, he met a man and a woman by the name of Aquila and Priscilla. You know that story. They were tent makers. And I love this because no doubt, it doesn't say it in this text, but I just suppose this to be true, that no doubt Paul led Priscilla and Aquila to the Lord while making tents with them. And Priscilla and Aquila became two of the most godly people that you're going to see in the New Testament. An example of a godly marriage of people sold out for the Lord. And they met in Corinth. So in the very midst of this godless society, maybe you live here and you're overwhelmed. I hear people say all the time, I'm getting out of this town. I'm going to go live in the Midwest or somewhere that's, you know... I'm going to live in the Bible belt, you know, as opposed to the, the belt we live in. I don't know what it is, right? And the reality is that, you know, a lot of times we want to run away and run to a place that's more godly. And again, if God calls you to do that, go do that. But can I tell you that the Lord needs people in Santa Cruz County that are sold out for Him, aren't ashamed of Him, and will be salt and light to a, a generation that so desperately needs the truth. Amen? And if you're living here, you make sure God calls you out before you leave, because God's got you here to use you. Well, that's how the church was in Corinth. And Paul had planted this church there, and it was growing. And we're going to see as we go through the text, they had great spiritual gifts, and God was using them mightily. But in the midst of all of that, we also know that they fell into sin. You know, it's been said as we were going through the Old Testament, those of you who come on Wednesday nights, we we're going through uh, Exodus, it was said that you could get the children of Israel out of Egypt, but you couldn't get Egypt out of the children of Israel. Too often they were going back to their old ways. And the same is true of the church in Corinth. It was a church that, again, it was very gifted by God, anointed by God, and being used by God, but at the same time, it could be said, was Corinth impacting the church, or was the church impacting Corinth? The same could be said of us. Are we impacting Santa Cruz, or is Santa Cruz impacting us? 
Are we living like the world around us or are we impacting the world around us? And the church in Corinth sadly had begun to compromise their faith and, and allow that their surroundings to, to draw them away from the Lord. We see that a letter is going to come, we'll see this morning, and Paul receives this letter and it breaks his heart to find out that this church that was doing great things for God in the midst of a perverse and wicked generation had fallen into sexual immorality, had had division among believers. They began to align with men. They were suing each other. They became selfish. They began to abuse the Lord's Supper and spiritual gifts. And it even got to the point where they began to deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ. How does this happen? It happens when we start being impacted by the world instead of having an impact on the world. It happens when we start being more worried about fitting in with men than honoring Almighty God. And the church in Corinth, very much like Santa Cruz, had fallen into the trap of being more concerned about what people thought than being obedient to the Lord. The church had been established, but again, they were unsuccessful in keeping Corinth out of the church. The pagan lifestyle of Corinth had a profound influence upon the Christians. And the Bible says, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So what's the theme and purpose? He's writing this letter to this church. He was their pastor. How much does he love him? He's their pastor. Now I can tell you this, that I love you guys so much I can hardly stand it. All right? I go through each week and I pray for you. If you're not in the church directory, I'll try to remember to pray for you. But if you're in there... I pray for you every week, and God has just given me a supernatural love for you guys, and I know it comes from the Lord. And I think of Paul's heart as he's writing this letter back to them. These were people that he had spent 18 months there. He had started this church. He had been their pastor. He had led many of them to the Lord. And now to find out what's going on, no doubt his heart is breaking. He writes this letter back to them, both to exhort them and to correct them and to warn them of the things that will happen if they continue on in the way they were living. So Paul wrote this letter as a corrective response. And the basic theme is to apply the Christian principles to to their daily life. Again, the fact that the cross has transformed their lives. They were to be different from the world. But the Corinthians were destroying their testimony because of immorality and disunity. You know what I hear all the time as a pastor? People find out I'm a pastor. One of the things I hear is, you know what? I've had so many Christians burn me. You know what? I've had people tell me they were a Christian and stab me in the back. I've had so many, you know, and the reality is that when we call ourselves Christians, the world judges Christ based on our actions. And what is happening in Corinth is they're not only divided with each other, but they're disgracing the name of God by their actions. The way they were living was bringing down the name of the Lord and was causing harm to his body. So Paul's writing this letter to correct them, to exhort them, to warn them, and to draw them back into right fellowship with Almighty God. So the first six chapters, we're going to see him issue correction. And the last nine chapters or so, we're going to see him counsel these people from a pastor's heart. He's going to count them about what real ministry is, what true unity is, what charity is, what spiritual maturity is. He's also going to instruct them in how to conduct themselves in the church on spiritual gifts, the resurrection from the dead, the true definition of love. Romans is the greatest epistle, in my opinion, in the Bible for doctrine. And I believe Corinthians is the greatest epistle in the Bible for correction and for practical application to our everyday life. As we go verse by verse through 1 Corinthians, you're going to see it just applying to your life all the way through. Not that every chapter in the Bible doesn't, because they all do. But Corinthians really is written in a very practical way. So, all that being said, chapter 1. 
Now chapter 1 I entitled, it's interesting because I, I spend the first part of when I study just really trying to define the central focus of what God wants me to share with you. And what I believe it is in the first half of this chapter and actually the entire chapter over the next two weeks is the Christian's calling. That's how I titled the message. God has a calling on your life and a calling on my life. And as you begin to look at this, it may seem odd that I titled it that, but as I looked through the chapter, what really struck me was that Paul writes them a letter, and the entire first chapter, he doesn't address as much their shortcomings, but he reminds them of who they are in Christ. And you know what? We need to be reminded of that constantly as to who we are in Christ. Amen? It's so easy for us to get caught up in the world and start living our lives and forget who we are as followers of the Lord. The church in Corinth, we're going to see in this first chapter, is struggling with being defiled by the world, with division among the brethren, and also disgracing God's name by the worldly living. So we're going to see in verses 1 through 9 first, him dealing with defilement in the church. He gets this letter and finds out sexual immorality is running rampant. He finds out that they're falling into the temple prostitution, that they're compromising their faith and they're becoming more like the world. And as he does, his first calling to them is to live holy lives. We're going to see in verses 10 through 25, we won't get through all that today, but we're going to also see the focal point on fellowship as they're being divided in their pursuit to follow after men instead of following after God. And then next week, we'll see the call to glorify God. So beginning in verse 1, the call to be holy. The first again thing that he, he attacks as the defilement of the church, the first thing that he does is he reminds them of who they are and note the characteristics of the church that is holy and set apart to God. Look at verse 1. Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God. This is the, the way that they wrote letters back then. The way we write letters today, we write to who it's to first and then we finish off with who it's from. They always write who it's from and then the second thing they say is who it's to. So he identifies himself right off the bat, Paul. Now we know this about Paul, that again, he was their initial pastor. He had spent 18 months there, and he was the one who had established a church. But we also know this too as we read on. There were a lot of people in Corinth that didn't care for Paul. They didn't care for the way he taught the word. They didn't think he was eloquent enough. They didn't like the fact that he didn't baptize many of them. And they were aligned with other leaders. But Paul introduces himself, and he says, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God. He's called to be an apostle. Paul's calling came from the Lord, not the will of men. He's writing this letter almost to say, guys, here's the letter, it's coming for me. Someone said, oh, Paul, we're done with that guy. He left five years ago. We're following Apollos now. We're following somebody else now. What is he writing us a letter for? And he reminds them that he's called not by them, but by God. You know what? Can I encourage you with something? It's not about voting on it by men, but being called by God. Amen? Don't worry about what men say. What does God say? If God has got a calling on your life, that is the key. And some of you get frustrated with your pastor because I won't call you to do anything. I just won't do it. If you're waiting for me to come up and grab you by the shoulders and tell you you need to do something, I'm just not going to do that because if I tell you, you're doing it for me. But if God calls you, you're doing it for Him. Amen? And we see here that Paul just says, look, I'm an apostle called by God. An apostle is a special ambassador that God himself raises up and is a sent one. He's one sent out with a specific message. And he was an apostle. He had actually seen Jesus Christ at his conversion. And he's letting them know, I'm an apostle called or by the will of God. Paul was simple and direct. He didn't try to wow people in his delivery. And some people struggle with that. He was someone who clearly imparted truth. 
You know what? Here's the reality. He was called to be an apostle, and everybody in this room, if you're saved, is called to be something. God did not save you, as you've heard me say many times, to be a pew potato. Amen? He didn't save you to be like the Dead Sea, all inlet and no outlet. God saved you to use you for His glory. And you are called. And as you continue to study the Word and grow closer to the Lord, start praying, Lord, how do you want to use me? What gifts have you given me? And one of the things I will tell you is a burden is the spawning ground of a calling. When God starts to give you a burden for something, I believe that's God moving on your heart to minister in that area. Most of you know I was a youth pastor for 15 years, and God gave me a supernatural burden for teenagers that still has not left. And it's on purpose. I mean it, okay? And I love teenagers, but that's the burden is the spawning ground of a calling. Paul was called to be an apostle. God has a calling on your life, and he wants to use you for his glory. Again, Paul's already contending with these Christians by just again, you may not recognize my credentials. You may not recognize that, you know, I was your pastor at one point, but I want you to know I've been called by God, not by men. Then he says, through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother. Now, this is a great story. I don't have time to go into all the detail, but back in Acts 18, Sosthenes was a guy who was a, who was a former head of the synagogue in Corinth. And when Paul had gone into Corinth the first time, he led the leader of the, Corinth, of the, of the synagogue, a man by the name of Crispus, who he's going to mention in a minute. He goes in the synagogue, and he starts preaching Jesus to the Jews who are waiting for the Messiah. And the head of the synagogue, Crispus, gets saved. And when he gets saved, they let him go. That's a, that's a, a sign of a bad thing, right? You know, if you're the pastor of a church and you get saved and they fire you, that's not good, right? And so what happens here is he gets fired, basically, because now he's serving and following God. The guy that replaced him was this man right here. His name was Sosthenes. And Sosthenes was so upset with Paul that he stirred up the people against him in an attempt to attack and persecute Paul. And interestingly enough, the Romans, because Paul was a Roman citizen, stood up for Paul and they beat Sosthenes. So one of the few times when Paul didn't get beaten, right? One of the few times when actually the person coming after him got beaten, and it was this man, Sosthenes. And what's amazing is five years later, look who he's hanging out with. This is the guy that wanted Paul dead. This is the guy who was trying to have Paul, you know, beaten and, and scourged. And instead, now he's hanging out with him. And again, what a picture of God's grace. A picture that we can go from someone who persecutes the church to someone who's being used mightily by God and walking with the Lord. And if anybody could relate to that, it was Paul. Paul was the guy killing Christians, right? He was getting letters and let's go find him and round him up when he was Saul of Tarsus. And we see his great transformation. I don't think it's by chance that now he, Sosthenes is hanging out with Paul and, in the, and very much in the same way he too is a trophy of God's grace. So Sosthenes, our brother, and no doubt writing that to them would have shocked some folks, right? I'm with Sosthenes. We're hanging out together. Remember him? Tried to beat us. Remember the guy went after us before? He's walking with the Lord. Verse 2. To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, who, with all who in every place call in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Here's some attributes of the church. First of all, it's the church of God. It's not the church at Corinth. It's the church of God. How many of you know there's only one church? Amen? And we're all a part of it. If you're a born-again believer, though we meet in different buildings and different places, those who've truly been born again, we're all one church. And we're going to see in a minute that it breaks God's heart that there's division in His body. We should be unified in our love for each other, our love for the Lord, our passion for the lost. That's God's heart. That's God's plan. 
So he writes to the church of God, which is at Corinth. And this is what he tells them. Now, he's reminding them. Remember, they're living in a godless place, and he's reminding them. They've fallen away from the Lord. They're defiling his, his name. They're divided with each other, and he reminds them of who they are. He says, let me remind you guys of who you are. And the first thing he tells them is you are sanctified. Those of you who've been coming here very long, you know that the word sanctified means set apart. You live in a godless place, but you have been set apart. Corinth is bad, the church is good. And he says, you are set apart. You are not to be like the world. Can I, and I've shared this with you before. Can I tell you, it breaks my heart when I hear churches today saying we need to be more like the world. It's the, it's the mass move right now in churches and marketing. We got to be more like the world and water down the gospel and don't offend anybody and be just like them so that they won't be offended and maybe they'll come back to church next week. Well, as we're going to see either today or next week, the cross of Christ is a stone of offense. Amen? And people need to hear that they're sinners in, need of a, in desperate need of a Savior. We're not out to make friends. We're out to make disciples. Amen? We're out to see people one to Christ and their lives transformed and the Spirit of living God moving in their hearts. And what he says here is, guys, you're set apart. You're not to be like the world. You've been sanctified by God. You're not just to go with the flow and be like everybody else. He says you're called to be saints. Now, if you have the to be in there, that was actually inserted by the translators. In the original language, you're called saints. may seem incredible that they would be called saints. What did I just tell you about this church? They're, they're being defiled, they're dividing, they're fighting with each other, they're, they're battling, they're, they're bitter, they've disgraced the name of God, and he still says you're called saints. Why? Because us being saints is not dependent on our holy living, but on Christ's work on the cross. Amen? It's not us being perfect that makes us saints. You know, some of you may have grown up in a church that taught you that to be a saint, you had to perform a miracle and be canonized by a group and all these kinds of things. Can I tell you something right now? If you're born again, you're a saint. Amen? That's who we are. I used to tell the youth group, you're either a saint or an ain't. Amen? I mean, either you've been born again or you haven't. And the reality is, saints are not the most perfect holy people because if they were, there wouldn't be any. Because none of us is perfect and none of us is holy enough apart from Christ. And we're saints not by our good works, but His great work on the cross. And He says to them, let me remind you of who you guys are. You're struggling because you've become like the world and you're fitting in in Corinth. I want you to tell you that you're sanctified. You've been set apart by God. And you are saints. You're my children. You're holy. Not because of your good works, but because of my great work. In the light of the issues, moral and and doctrinal and authority, it's amazing that he would continue to call them saints. But again, it's because of the work of God, not because of their work. It says there, called to be saints with all in every place who call on the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, both theirs and ours. You know what? All who call on the name of the Lord are saints. Saint, again, not a special achievement. So that means that the other Christian churches in town who are calling on the name of the Lord, have given their lives to Jesus Christ, they're saints, and they are our brothers and sisters in Christ. And again, we should be united with them. This is not a competition. Amen? I've said this many times. I don't care which boat they get in as long as they get to shore. Amen? We need to be praying. Pray for Santa Cruz Bible. They're still looking for a pastor. Let's pray for them. Amen? That God would raise up a godly man. Christian Life Center, looking for a pastor. First Baptist Church in Watsonville, looking for a pastor. You know, I'm praying that God would raise up godly men. 
It's not about, you know, seeing how big our church can get. It's about reaching Santa Cruz County with the gospel. Amen? And I'm excited when I hear God's doing great things in other churches. I don't get jealous. I'm not competing with anybody. And sadly, what was happening here was they were competing with each other. And they were divided. And he says, look, guys, they're all saints. All in every place who call on the name of the Lord. They're your brothers. We need to be united. We need to be of one heart. Verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Every time you see this greeting, and it's very common, it's always grace and then peace. You know why? Because without grace, there can be no peace. Amen? It's always grace and then peace. What is grace? God's riches at Christ's expense. Without grace, we cannot know peace. We cannot have peace if we don't know the prince of peace. Amen? And so he says, if you want to have peace, you've got to know God's grace. And he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Now you would think he would say, whippings to you. Right? (laughs) Discipline to you. Smacks upside the head to you, right? He doesn't say that. You know, you guys are blowing it, man. Right? What happened? I taught you guys. Weren't you listening? Right? He doesn't do that. He writes them a letter, reminds them of who they are, and says, guys, grace and peace to you. You're saints. You're sanctified. You're his kids. You belong to him. Get your eyes back on God. Grace and peace. I know you've seen the sticker. It says N-O. No, Jesus, no peace. No, K-N-O-W, Jesus, no peace. You want to know peace? You need to know Jesus. And grace and peace are truly linked together. You know what? The world has no peace. The world pursues it in you know, riches and everything else under the sun, but they'll never have peace if they don't get to know the Prince of Peace. Now notice it says here, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to just comment on that for a second, because you see it a lot in the Bible. Those, that's not like his first, middle, and last name, right? Some people think it's Lord Jesus Christ, like that's his, you know, that's his name. He probably signed that, right, when he, Lord Jesus Christ, right? No. Let me tell you what, just real quickly, definition. Jesus is his name. It's the same name, it's a Greek version of Joshua. Christ is his office. Who's Christ? He's the Messiah, the anointed one, the Savior. And then Lord is his title, because he's our master. Okay? So Jesus is who he is. His name means Yahweh is salvation. Jesus or Joshua means Yahweh is salvation. Christ is why he came. Jesus is who he is. Christ is why he came. He's the Messiah. He's the anointed one who is sent to save and deliver us from our sins. And Lord is what he is. Our master, our boss, our God, the one that we serve with our whole heart. Only one worthy of our worship and our praise. God made manifest in the flesh. So his name is Jesus. His title is, or his office is Christ, and his title is Lord. So Jesus Christ, our Lord. Good reminder as he's writing this letter. So not only are they called to be set apart, but then he begins to tell them all the things that God has done for them, that they've been blessed by the grace of God. Look at verse 4. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God, which was given to you by Christ Jesus. I thank my God always concerning you. Paul writing this letter to correct these guys who are totally blowing it begins by saying, I thank God when I remember you. But notice what he says. He says, I doesn't say, I thank my God for your righteousness. I thank my God for your faithfulness. What does he say? I thank God always concerning you for what? The grace of God, because they needed it. Amen? 
These guys were living godless lives. They were not walking in righteousness. They were not walking in holiness. They were not walking in obedience. And he says, I thank God for his grace. And you know what? When I get up in the morning, I thank God for his grace towards me. How about you? Amen? I thank God that he's such a gracious and a loving and a merciful God. And that where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. And he continues to, to love me even though I continue to blow it. Reminding them again of the grace of God. Verse 5, that you were enriched in everything by Him, in all utterance and all knowledge. Even in the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you have come short in no gift. So he says to them that God has blessed them richly with spiritual gifts, both in speech and in understanding, both in utterance and understanding. So he's saying, look, God's gifted you guys to eloquently deliver the truth. He's gifted you guys with every gift that can come out of someone's mouth, whether it be prophecy or tongues, or whatever it might be. You're gifted. And He's given you all knowledge and understanding. God has blessed you and gifted you guys so incredibly much. And it says there in verse 6, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, that these gifts are proof that they belong to the Lord, that they're being manifest among them. And then verse 7, so that you come short in no gift. The Corinthians were gifted as spiritually as any other group of believers. And sadly, they weren't using it they were not using it for God's glory. You know, they had knowledge, but we're going to see that they took that knowledge and fought with each other. You know, I, again, this is a Pastor Dave's opinion, all right? It grieves me when I see Christians sitting at a table bashing on each other for six hours about some non-essential. You know what? Let's go talk to somebody that needs to be born again. Amen? Let's quit fighting with each other about, well, I believe, well, I think, well, so what, right? I mean, here's the reality. You know, you're sitting in a restaurant bashing on each other's heads for six hours. I've been there, you know, sitting next to these guys. They've been, you can tell they've been there all day. They got their stuff out. And the waitress, you know, is weeping because she's going through difficulty. And they're, you know, they're yelling at her to get more stuff. And you're like, dude, would you quit arguing with each other and start ministering to her? Amen? And what happens is these guys had knowledge. You know what they used it for? They didn't reach out to the lost. Instead, they were bickering with each other. And they were fighting with each other over non Now, I'm not talking about the cross or the essentials of the faith, but the non-essentials. Fighting over whether or not we should have an organ or guitar for worship on Sunday. You know what I mean? Guys, whatever. Just get over it, right? The reality is, it's Jesus Christ and crucified and risen from the dead. That's the key. That's what we need to be preaching. And they took knowledge to, instead of reaching out to the lost, to bass each other. Look also what it says about them. They're eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I struggle with this because if they were eagerly waiting to be raptured, I think they'd be living a little bit more holy. Amen? But here's the reality. He said, you guys know the Lord's returned. He's going to rapture. He's going to take his children back home. And you know what? I think it's very easy for us to get caught up in the world and forget that. It's very easy for us as Christians to be making a 50-year plan and forget about the fact that we don't even have the promise of tomorrow. Amen? Now, we should plan and be faithful to that, but remember that today's a day of salvation, and we don't have the promise of tomorrow. And could the Lord come back this afternoon? Could He rapture the church this afternoon? Absolutely. He absolutely could. And the reality is, may we be found faithful when He comes. May we not be building the stuff that is perishing, but may we be found faithful serving Almighty God. And he says to them, you're eagerly waiting. You come short in no gift. You're waiting for the Lord. And he says to them, who will also confirm you to the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Again, this boggles my mind. These guys are sanctified and set apart to God. God's given them every gift, and yet they're living in the world and walking in carnality. And then he says to them that he will confirm you to the end, that you may be blameless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're going to be blameless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because of their good works? They don't have any good works right now, right? They're defiling the name of God. They're fighting with each other over non-essentials. They're disgracing His name. And He says, God's going to find you blameless. Why? Because again, it's not our good works that save us. It's His great grace. Amen? When I stand before God on Judgment Day, He's going to look at me through the veil of the cross. He's going to look at me through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And He's going to see in me what He sees in His Son. He's going to see me holy and righteous and perfect and forgiven. Amen? And it's not because I've done great works. And he says to these guys, he's reminding them, you guys are living in carnality. Can I remind you of who you are? You're set apart to God. You're saints. You're his children. He's got a plan for your life. He's given you every gift. And you know what? He's going to hold you blameless in the end when you stand before the creator of the universe. Verse 9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Again, this word here for confirm back in, in verse 8 is a legal transaction. It means paid in full. And you know what? That's what Jesus did for us. And God promises to be faithful to them. Now, this is not an excuse to sin, you guys. Too often we see this stuff and then we think of cheap grace. All right. Well, it says, sir, I'm going to be held blameless in the day of the Lord, so I can just live however I want. Can I tell you something? Those who truly love God are convicted by their sin. Amen? When we Christians, do we sin? Yes. We're not sinless, but we do sin less. Amen? And as Christians, when we sin, it grips our heart, and it breaks our heart, and it drives us back to a place of repentance. If you can live in continual sin and feel no conviction, you need to be born again. Amen? Because when you're born again, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you, and the Holy Spirit's not going to just go off and sin with you and not say something. Amen? It's going to give you what I call the Holy Spirit head slap, right? When I sin, that's why I don't have any hair back here. You, you thought I was just... The reality is that when I sin, I feel that conviction, and it's because God loves me. And he's saying to these guys, look, you know what? God's going to hold you blameless, but this is not a reason for you and I to just go off and live a sinful life. Can I tell you something? That he that knows to do right and does not do it is miserable. Amen? When you're living outside of God's will, doesn't it just kill you? It breaks my heart. And if it doesn't, again, you need to be born again because the Holy Spirit loves you enough that he will convict you of sin to bring you back into a right relationship with the Lord. And he's writing this letter to people he loves and he says, he doesn't say, look at verse 9, and you guys are faithful. Is that what it says? It says God is faithful. Amen? Aren't you glad that your salvation isn't based on your faithfulness? Amen? It's based on his faithfulness. God is faithful to his word. He's a great and awesome God. God doesn't need us, we need Him. Amen? And He says God is faithful. He's reminding these guys in this calling to be holy. He said, you've been set apart, you've been sanctified, you're saints, you're blessed with every spiritual gift, you've received God's grace, you've been called into fellowship with the Son, and He's pointing them to these guys who are struggling in carnality. You know what, if you're here this morning and you're struggling in your walk with God, can I remind you who you are? You're His Son. You're his daughter. Amen? He loves you. He'd rather die than live without you. You are his treasured possession. That's what the Bible says. And with all that being true, 
when we think about that when we sin, it ought to bring even greater conviction. Amen? When we get ready to sin, it ought to cause us to think, I'm a child of the King. He suffered and died that I might have eternal life. Next time you're getting ready to sin, you think about the cross and what Jesus did for you. Amen? And that's what's happening here. He's reminding these guys who are living godless lives of who they are. He doesn't come in with a stick, at least not initially, right? He comes in and puts his arm around him and says, can I remind you guys of who you are? Let me tell you who you are. You're his kids, and he loves you. You're set apart to God. He's got a calling on your life. And you know what? He's a God of grace, and he's going to endure with you until the end. A Christian's calling, first, is a calling to be holy. Now he's going to begin to deal with them about the division that's going on. Because there's division, and, and again, it breaks God's heart when we are divided as believers. We should not be competing with each other, fighting with each other, divided over the non-essentials. Again, I'm not talking about the essentials of salvation, those things we do divide over. We divide with the Muslim, amen? Because Jesus Christ is God, Muhammad is not. Jesus Christ paid the price, Muhammad could not. Jesus Christ rose from the dead and Muhammad's in the ground, amen? And so we do divide over the essentials, but we don't divide over things as to what kind of worship or, you know, even what our position maybe is on end times or, you know, old or new, you know, things that, that I have a position on, but they're not essentials to salvation, amen? And we're not to be divided over those things. But we're going to see here that there was division and bickering in the church, and it was bringing down the name of the Lord. Look at verse 10. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. The word there for division in, in Greek is schismata, where we get the word for schism. It means to tear or rip. What happens when we're divided? We're tearing and ripping away at the church. We're tearing or ripping away at God's highest. And you know what else? We're, we're blowing our testimony before the world. And Paul's plea was that they would stop tearing each other apart. And he says there that you would be joined together. The word there for joined together is a knitting together of bones that have been fractured. You know what? There needs to be some knitting together in the church today. Amen? We need to, again, be like-minded. We need to have more of a burden for, for the lost and for other churches in town. To be unified together. It's not about Calvary Chapel. It's about the church of Jesus Christ. To be of the same mind, the same affections, the same desires. Philippians 2 says this, the same be, mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Jesus, perfect, holy God, humbled himself, and we are to be of the same mind. Where does most division come from? Pride. Amen? I'm smarter than you. I got it all figured out. You must be dumb, right? I've had people take me out and try to explain doctrinal positions to me and look right across the table at me and say, Pastor Dave, I thought you were smarter than that. Right? Because I, well, I, you know, let me tell you, I've studied and I, you know. You know what, bro? The waitress needs to hear about Jesus. I'm not going to talk to you anymore, right? The reality is we can sit and argue and banter and bicker over stuff that is non-essentials in the faith and be divided. And it tears away the kingdom of God, debating over things that don't even matter when it comes to eternity. Again, there's a time and a place to, in a loving way, discuss doctrine to, to bring people to understanding. But that should not be something that divides us, but unites us. Amen? 
It should not be something that causes the, the, the kingdom of God to be harmed. And what is most of it based on? It's based on pride. Can I tell you again that there's nothing special about you apart from Jesus Christ? Amen? You know what? The kingdom of God would go on just fine without you. That's reality. Now, is that God's heart? No. Does he love you? Yes. Are you his treasured possession? Yes. Are you that pearl of great price that he would sell everything to come and get you? Yes. He loves you. But God doesn't need you. You need him. Amen? You desperately need him. And we see here that they're divided and they're prideful and they're arrogant. Verse 11. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's house, that there are contentions among you. So he gets either a letter or word directly back from people from Chloe's household. Chloe was a, a matron in the church, and she sent word back saying there's contentions. The word there for contentions is quarrels. And these contentions arose for the same reason the most divisions again come in the church today. The believers in Corinth had forgotten the foundation of their faith. They had forgotten about the cross. They took their eyes off the cross, and they started focusing on something else. When we're focusing on the cross and our fact that we've been born again and that Jesus paid the price for us and we're going to heaven and we're sinners saved by grace and we're just one beggar leading another beggar to the bread, we're not walking around real arrogant. Amen? We're walking around desperate. We're walking around thankful. We're praising God, not praising ourselves, not drawing men unto ourselves. And they were contentious and they were quarreling because they'd gotten their eyes off the cross. They had turned aside to arguing about secondary matters. Again, the non-essentials that don't, won't matter when we get to heaven. We get to heaven, whatever instruments God's playing is going to be just fine with us. No one's going to say, I thought we're having organs up here, right? God's not, we're not going to have that. We get to heaven, we're going to be praising God. And we're going to be thankful for whatever it is. And I promise you, when every one of us gets to heaven, we're all going to learn a ton. Amen? Well, I've got it all figured out. No, you don't. That's why you desperately need the Lord. Amen? Because without Him, you can do nothing. We need to remain desperate for Him. Now watch this. We're almost done here. Now say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Caesar, Cephas, and I am of Christ. I am of Paul. The source of division was aligning with different human leaders. There's nothing new under the sun. Amen? People are aligning with different human leaders. Our nature enjoys following men. Following human leaders. We tend to identify more with spiritual leaders who help us and who minister to us and those who we enjoy their teaching. But instead of emphasizing the message of the word, the Corinthians emphasize the messenger. Why do churches fall apart when a pastor leaves? Because they're following a man. If you're following the Lord and the word, whoever delivers the message should be irrelevant. Amen? It's not about a man, it's about the Lord. Is God still God, no matter who's up here on Sunday morning? Is His words just as faithful? Absolutely. I get hit by a bus, none of you better leave. All right? You know what I'm saying? Don't follow a man, follow the Lord. And, and can you imagine when Paul heard this? Some were saying, I'm of Paul. Paul's like, oh no. Don't put me in there, man. Whatever you do, don't get me involved in that argument. Leave me alone, man. I, don't do that, right? I don't want to be a use that you have for dividing the body of Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul will point out that there can be no competition among true servants of God. We're not to be disciples of men, but disciples of Christ. Amen? 
They got their eyes off the Lord, and they got their eyes on servants, and it led to competition. And the personality cults in the church today are in direct disobedience to the Word of God. Too many churches today are built on the charismatic personality of a man instead of the Word of God. Pastor means servant. Senior pastor means chief slave. Amen? So the chief slave is here to serve you. You don't serve him. Amen? And you don't honor him. And, you know, you know I, I should be ministering more to you than you ever minister to me. I'm your servant, not the other way around. And sadly, what happens is these guys are lining up behind men. I'm with Paul. I'm in the Paul camp. Paul, Cephas, that guy's a fisherman. What does he know? You know what I mean? And these guys are going after each other, and they're aligning with men. And you know what happens today? I'm a, I'm a Lutheran. I'm a Baptist. I'm a Calvary Chapelite, right? right? I go to this church. And the reality is, we're not of Calvary Chapel, and we're not, you know, we're of Jesus Christ. Amen? When I get to heaven, we're not going to have the Calvary Chapel section. <laughs> right? There's the Calvary Chapel section over here. You guys all go hang out with each other. Here's the reality. We're all of Jesus Christ. And Paul gets this word, I'm of Cephas, and I'm of Paul, and I'm of Apollos, and nothing new under the sun. Some said, we follow Paul. He was the guy who founded the church. I'm always going to be with the guy who founded the church. He founded it. I'm with him. Ever heard that before? He leaves, I'm leaving. Right? I'm following him. Others said, well, Paul, man, that guy, he wasn't all that impressive. You know, he, didn't, he wasn't real eloquent. We like Apollos because he's a real eloquent speaker. He's got a powerful personality. And man, that guy's really intellectual. So we follow Apollos. Paul's just too simple. So we want Apollos. Then others said, you know that guy Apollos? He's real eloquent, but I got no idea what he's talking about. That guy's speaking way over my head, right? He's got $47 words. You know what? Sometimes I listen to Hank Hanegraaff. No, I'm not picking on anybody, but he uses some words. I'm like, what is he talking about? I'm a pastor, and I don't know. Well, I think it would be a thesis if you lose it. What? What are you talking about? Just talk simply, amen? Just give people the truth. Don't, you know, over their head. Well, they said, that Apollos guy, man, he's way too smart. He just right over our head. We like Peter. He's a big fisherman. He just comes and says, man, you know what? And they go, that ah, we like him. We're following him. And then lastly, the last group says, we're not of any of those guys, we're of Christ. And again, that would sound like the best group to be in. But sadly, when you look into it, they were saying, we're of Christ because we don't, we don't need any teachers. We don't need any pastors. Nothing new under the sun today. Amen? Now, we are of Christ and we can approach him directly, but does God call those to be pastor teacher? Absolutely. I have a pastor. I have several pastors that I still consider. Pastor Don McClure will always be my pastor. Pastor John Snodley will always be my pastor. And Chuck Smith, in my mind, will be my pastor. These are guys who have taught me and ministered to me. And they're my pastor, and I still call and seek counsel from them. And, but is my relationship with them or is it with the Lord? It's with the Lord, amen? But I still have those who are called into my life. So these guys are all bickering, and they're dividing, and they're fighting over which one they want to follow. And because of that, it was bringing division in the church. The men themselves had different personalities and approaches to ministry, yet they all had one message. That's the sad part. These guys would have been, what is up with that? Now look what Paul says. Is Christ divided? Let me ask you a question. Is Christ divided? It, no. If, if we divide Christ, who bleeds? He does. Amen? And then look what Paul says. Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in my name? Then look at Paul. I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. He's saying, you know what? Get me out of this program. 
I want nothing to do with this argument, and I'm so thankful I didn't baptize very many of you guys, because you'd be walking around. I'm a Paul. He baptized me right down here in that river. Here's my card, right? It's my baptismal certificate, right? Look, Paul signed it right there. I'm, I'm in, right? And it wasn't that they, it wasn't that they were so in love with Paul, but they were arrogant about somehow having a relationship with him. And they're arrogant. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Paul. I'm of the Baptist church. I'm of the Methodist church. I'm of Calvary Chapel. No, I'm of Jesus Christ. Amen? And we're all one church, and we all should be unified together, loving one another, glorifying Him. And he says, was Paul crucified for you? I love that. Did I die on the cross for you guys? I don't think so. And I love the fact that Paul, you can tell, he's not happy about this. Don't be putting my name in there. Chuck once told us at a pastor's conference, he said, you ever put my name on anything, I'm coming back from heaven to strike you down. Don't you dare put my name on anything. When I die, don't be having no Chuck Smith Memorial Hall or any. Don't, don't you dare do that, right? Don't, and if that's Paul. Don't be, don't be putting me in this argument. I got nothing to do with it. I just shared Jesus with you guys. And again, was I crucified? I didn't do anything. It was Jesus Christ and Him alone that can save you. Last couple of verses. Lest anyone should say, I baptize in my own name. Yes, I've also baptized the household of Stephanus. Besides, I did not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. You know what's interesting here? A couple things, and we'll close. He first says, I baptized Crispus. That was the guy who was the head of the synagogue he led to the Lord. Gaius was the guy whose house he was living in in Rome. And then the household of Stephanos, Stephanos' wife was Chloe that sent him the letter. Again, if the result is that it would elevate people to say that I baptized you. I'm glad that I didn't baptize any of you. Paul said, I'm the chief of sinners and I'm saved by grace. I don't want you elevating me above what I am. I'm just, again, one beggar leading another beggar to the bread. We must be careful to, ne to never let anyone elevate us. Don't let people elevate you. Don't let people tell you how you know, awesome you are. There's only one who's awesome and it's not you. Amen? We throw that word out around a lot. He's awesome, we're not. He's great, we're not. He's good, we're not. Amen? So to Him be all the glory, all the honor, all the praise, all the worship. And you know what? Our flesh loves it when people praise us, don't, don't, doesn't it? Don't you love it when someone tells you stuff? Even as a pastor, you know, we've got to be careful. You know, people call, I've been listening to you on the radio, and you're so wonderful. And you're, yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> got to be careful. Got to be careful. That's why whenever anybody says anything to me, you always hear me say the same thing, by God's grace. Amen? Because any good in me is Him. Any good in you is Jesus. Don't be accepting thanks what belongs to Him. It's Him, not you. Amen? You don't step in front and say thanks a lot. No, say thank Him. Amen? To Him be the glory. Now, I want you to see one last thing here. It says, I did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. You know, if you're here and you think you need to be baptized to be saved, I think you've got a problem. Because look what he just said here. He didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. So that means he preached the gospel without baptism. Now, should we be baptized? Yes. Is baptism an act of obedience? Without question. It's an outward statement of an inward change. It comes subsequent to salvation. It's not the source of salvation. Amen? So it's Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. It is finished. To Talistai. Amen? And so because of the cross, we're saved. We should be baptized, but baptism is a, does not save us. If it, was, if it did, it would be a works-based salvation, because we'd have to do something in addition to simply accepting Him as our Savior. So Paul, again, look what he says here. 
being saved, lest the cross, they didn't want to use wisdom of words. They didn't want to use flowery words. They didn't want to get caught up in the latest preaching fad. You know, Paul wasn't preaching seven ways to overcome doubt. He wasn't preaching five steps to financial freedom or the power of positive thinking or how to overcome addiction, increase your self-esteem, or heal your inner child. He wasn't doing any of that. You know what he was preaching? Jesus Christ, Tim crucified, and risen from the dead. Amen? You know what we're always going to preach here at this church? Jesus Christ, Tim crucified, and risen from the dead. You want your marriage fixed? Fall in love with Jesus. Amen? You want to overcome addiction? Fall in love with the Lord and bring it to the cross. Amen? You want to have a walk that's sold out for you? You want to be used mightily by the Lord? You want to have financial freedom? Just fall in love with the Lord. You won't need so much stuff and you'll get out of debt. Amen? <laughs> the reality is that we need to seek the Lord. And, we need, and I love the fact that he said, I'm not using flowery wisdom of words. I'm not getting up here and backdooring the gospel in some remote way. I'm not trying to just soothe people into No, he just got up and said, you guys are sinners, you need Jesus. Amen? And praise the Lord for that. That he's taught the truth without compromise. Now next week, if you, if you underline verses, underline verse 18. One of my favorite verses in the Bible. We're going to see that with division in the church, one of the keys was getting them back to looking to the cross. Getting them back to understanding the significance of the cross. And that's what we're going to pick up next week. So now you've got to come back next week to the rest of the chapter, okay? All right? So what we've learned this morning, what we've seen, is we've seen that living in the midst of a godless and perverse generation, that God can still do great and awesome things because we've been set apart. We've been sanctified by God. He's given us every spiritual gift to be salt and light to this place. We've been called out not to be like the world, be in the world, but not like the world. God's heart breaks when we're divided over things that are non-essential to the faith. That we need to be unified, not divided. That Santa Cruz County needs to see a unified church. Amen? If we're busy fighting with people at another church down the street, what does that tell the believer? It tells them that there's no more hope in our lives than in theirs. But when they see us loving each other supernaturally, they're going to want what we have. Amen? They're going to want to know our Lord and our Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that as we live in modern-day Corinth, a place that is godless, we thank you that we've been sanctified and set apart, and that we are saints by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that you have a calling on each and every life. But while we may not be called to be apostles, Lord, you've called us, and you have a plan for us, and you want to use us here in Santa Cruz, this other city by the sea, this place where people come to vacation and escape from morality. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to be salt and light here. Help us, Lord, to reach out to the lost. May they see your truth and see your love and see your grace and just the way that we love each other and the way that we live before men. And Lord, I do want to lift up the other churches here in town that teach your word. Lord, I pray your blessings upon them. I pray they'd be fruitful. Lord, I pray for the pastor, the churches that need pastors, that you would bring the guy that you have, a man who will not just be the most charismatic, but Father, bring a man who will teach your word without compromise. Bring a man, Lord, who will love your sheep. Bring them, Lord, and I pray, Father God, you'd help us to minister to others, Father God, to love them and to encourage them and strengthen them in their walk. So, Lord, we love you, we praise you, we worship you. We thank you, Lord, that while we live in a world that so desperately needs you, that we can walk with you and that we're not alone. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Let's stand and close the worship song.